that time again when we take two guys who think they know everything about science, place them in a bar and let them loose with a microphone. Welcome to the Beer Drinking Scientists. Let's hear what the boys are up to this month. Well, welcome to the Beer Drinking Scientist for the first time in quite a while again. Um, I'm your uh, one of your hosts for this episode, Darren Osborne. I'm joined here by Mark West. I have to admit uh, that it's good to see you again, Darren. It's good oh, to be here. Well, well, yes, likewise. And I mean, we, we, we see each other every now and again. We do. It's just, it's just a matter of us getting together and, and, and bringing a microphone and we having a chat. We don't always bring a microphone. This is the problem, isn't it? We bring yeah. the beer, but we don't bring the microphone. It's a big problem. Anyway, today we're, we're going to be, uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to most people's hearts. This is true. We're going to be talking about the topic of sex. I have to admit, I'm not much of a geneticist myself, but uh, I like to think I have a working uh, knowledge, a hands-on sort of knowledge. What about you, Darren? I don't know about hands-on, but I am <laughs> going to preface this uh, episode by saying that anything we say about ourselves is, is, is truly in the hypothetical range. It's got nothing to do with our actual lives. So if our partners are listening t- uh, to this podcast, don't believe anything we say. It's uh, yeah, far more interesting that way anyway. So. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to kick off by, um, by having a look at uh, the, the actual topic of, of sex itself and some of the statistics and some of the, the things that come out of, of sex and some of the sex surveys that are being done. And it's interesting to know that even though uh, sex has been something that maybe the Greeks, you know, uh, like uh, Hippocrates might have, have, have thought about as he pondered the world and all the things around him, it, it wasn't until uh, the, the 1950s when Alfred Kingsley first did the, the, the first definitive bit of scientific research into sex. Um, because before that, I mean, particularly in the Victorian era of the 1900s, it just wasn't talked about. I was just out of the 1800s. It just wasn't talked about. We didn't talk about it at all. And even up until uh, World War II, it was something that was kept away. But it was um, Dr. Alfred uh, Kingsley who, who pioneered these, these surveys that he did in the late 1940s and the early 1950s. And he, he uh, interviewed a number of, quite a number of, of, of men and women in the US um, and asked them a range of different questions about about uh, sex and masturbation and intercourse and, and their marital history and so forth and came, came through with some, some interesting statistics. That was, that was pretty much the definitive survey of the, the 1900s, wasn't it? The, yeah. The survey. Yeah, I think it's something that most people always refer back to as sort of the dawn of, 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 of the, the, the research into sex. So, so let's have a look at some of the numbers that, that came out of that. Um, the first thing was that uh, a fifth of males had their first um, sexual uh, intercourse at the time of 16 years. So that was only 20% back then. Uh, married women uh, were having sex 2.2 times a week by the age of 30. Um, foreplay. Foreplay is always interesting. It's, it's always interesting, yeah. <laughs> One that a lot of men feel pressured yep. into. No, no, it shouldn't be. Uh, foreplay lasted four to ten minutes for only a third of couples. Only a third of couples, I should point that out. And 40% of males preferred um, making love in the light. Not in the oh, dark. as opposed to the dark in or the... under the covers. Or... That's right. I'm always fascinated by these surveys. Any scientific uh, uh, report... But especially when it comes to something quite personal as sex, as these things are always self-reported, aren't they? They're not. Uh, there's not a there's not a man in a lab coat taking notes and timing the foreplay, are there? It, it, it's it's always self-reported, which makes me wonder about. Well, 
Are they actually, you know, increasing the time of foreplay, decreasing their age of first sex? Increasing the length of their... Yeah, mm. for instance, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it's well, interesting. Well, well, come to that. Come to some of those numbers in a sec. But it's certainly a good point, because in science, we rely on objectivity. We rely on exact measurements and comparisons. And, and certainly when you're self-reporting, uh, and that is you're talking about your experiences that you've had in the past... Um, yeah, there's that, that bias, that subjectivity that can come into it. One other stat I, I didn't uh, forgot to mention there was that, that 47.5% of men ejaculated within five minutes of sex beginning. But Kingsley actually mentions um, or he speculates in there that he thinks that around about three quarters of those men actually um, reached orgasm within two minutes of actual intercourse itself. Oh, right. So, so, the, so there's two minutes or so of foreplay beforehand. Is this what he's saying? That, that's what he's speculating. Now, the, the next phase in, in, in sexual research actually came from Masters and Johnson. Sounds like a brand of a... It does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> healthcare product. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> um, but they, 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 they went one step further and they actually wanted to look at what happened to, to humans, to human physiology in the act of sex. And, and they developed an, a number of different devices, uh, mainly sort of polygraph type things, so things that would measure respiration and heartbeat and that sort of stuff um, uh, while people were having sex um, or masturbating. And, and they actually had a report that they came out, I think it was in the late 60s, I might get corrected here, but that, that was sort of the next pioneering area into sex. Now, here in Australia, um, in, in uh, the early, early, uh, early last decade, in the noughties, as we can call it, yeah. A number of universities, the uh, University of Sydney, La Trobe University of Victoria and the University of New South Wales, they actually conducted the Australian Study of Health and Relationships and they interviewed uh, 19,000 Australians between the ages of of 16 and 59 and and they came out with some numbers. So um, That's a good sample size. It it is a very good sample size, 19,000, yeah. So um, let's have a look at some of the numbers there. Um, They come up with uh, that the people reported that uh, they had, uh, on average, uh, sex 1.84 times a week. Now, that's interesting. So we compare that back to, uh, to Kingsley's report. They were saying 2.2 for females at the age of 30. So one, one would suggest that we're actually having less sex than we were back in the 50s, if we were in America. Yeah, that's true. That's a surprising result, isn't it? Mm. It seems uh, lower than you would expect, given you know, times move along and the reputations of Australians, you know? Yeah, being, you know, sexed up and all that sort of thing. But maybe we're not. Maybe maybe it's that element of being British. Yes, maybe that's our British heritage, right, right. yeah. (laughs) Um, But they also found that uh, 85% of the respondents said that they wish they had sex twice a week. Yes. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, some other things that they uh, that they came out of that study was that um, they revealed that um, vaginal intercourse was by far the most common sexual practice, and that most people, ninety five percent of men and seventy nine percent of women, um, had an orgasm the last time they had sex. Now I must say, seventy nine percent of women, when, when you read other literature, that that's quite high. That seems a lot higher than. Uh where, uh, you know, those billboards for the Australian Medical Institute, you know, uh, that say that you can spray something up your nose and you will perform better if you're a man. That, that's a lot higher than uh, than they would lead you to, to think. Spinderella cut it up one time.
right, so when it comes to sex, there's been some interesting surveys that have looked at the whole issue of the orgasm, and in particular the female orgasm, because it seems to be something that you know males don't seem to have trouble with, but it's more of a concern for women. Um, and this, this interesting study came out um, about two years ago. It appeared in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, and it was done by researchers at the University of West Scotland um, on a, on a, when they questioned a group of 1,000 Czech women. I don't know what it says about the state of Scottish sexual health when you have to interview women. You've got to go to another country. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Anyway, what they did is they, they did a survey, another one of those self-reporting surveys that we're talking about, and um, they asked women about their vaginal orgasms. So that's not uh, orgasms that were caused by stimulation of the clitoris or anything else. It was just through um, vaginal stimulation. And, and they found that there were two factors that were most important. One of them was the duration of the intercourse, so the longer, the more likely. Um, but the other one was the length of the penis of the male sexual partner. And um, one third of women, uh, or 34%, uh, said that they were more likely to have an orgasm with a longer than average penis. Now men, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about grabbing a tape measure, I don't know if you would while you've seen the podcast, <laughs> but uh, the average penis is 14.5 centimetres or approximately six, six inches. Six Erect. Inches. Erect, yeah. yeah. We should, not yeah. in the gym. No, not in no. the cold. Yeah, not in the cold either. Not after you've been yeah. in the cold water. No, no not at all. Right. Okay, so <laughs> that, that, that was the two things they found. Another interesting thing they found was that women were more likely to um, have an orgasm through vaginal stimulation if they were focused on the vagina and they were thinking about what was going on um, while they were having sex. Um, so you know, it's quite interesting. And, and the researchers said it was important, therefore, that women become more aware of their bodies and of the role of their bodies in sex. So basically sex education. Now, you've got an interesting study that's come out of women in China. Yeah, yeah. A very similar result came out of a, a, a report that was published called Partner Wealth Predicts Self-Reported Orgasm Frequency in a Sample of Chinese Women. And uh, in, in this study, they found that there was a positive correlation between the wealth of the male and the number of orgasms that the, the, the female had uh, in, in a Chinese population. And one of the conclusions they, they drew was that uh, the women who were better educated uh, were partnering with better educated men who uh, were therefore more wealthy. And so better educated women were more likely to have an orgasm during sex because I guess they're more aware of their own bodies, that sort of thing. There, there is an ongoing debate, I think, within uh, the science community whether the female, what role does the female orgasm play? Whether it's uh, kind of like a, a, a byproduct from the fact that, that males have orgasms, which is a, a really strong driver towards sexual uh, reproduction and evolution, or whether it has its own functional, uh, uh, functional place. Um, well, I saw some interesting, uh, interesting documentary on this subject maybe a year or two ago, which actually claimed to have video of, of what actually occurred in in the female body um, during an orgasm. And, and documentary, that was, Darren. It was a documentary. Yeah, yeah definitely. It was not something from Fishwick. It was not a, <laughs> one of my, one of those videos that I bought from there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it actually showed that the, the, the orgasm actually caused the cervix to, to, to move in a manner that actually, uh, like the better term, grabbed or, or seeked um, the sperm from the male ejaculate. Um, okay. So, so you know, maybe there still is some physiological reason for the female orgasm. Yeah, that, I mean, there's... I mean, that, that would be quite possible, wouldn't it? Because it would, you know, in evolutionary terms, it would 
push the sperm towards the eggs, therefore you'd reproduce. There's also the idea that it just feels good, so therefore you have sex, mm. right? Um, but the fact that it doesn't occur as easily as a male orgasm makes some people think that it's uh, not, not really selected for, it's more of a byproduct. Probably from the words of male researchers. Yeah, that's right. This is the thing, and you're coming, you're hearing uh, two male podcasters right now. Yesterday, I was one of the So all those numbers and, you know, surveys into how and why we have orgasms and sex in the first place are all very important, but why, why do we have sex? Is it more than just filling in the weekend with a Barry White CD playing in the background? Mark, tell us about the, the origin of sex. You know I have Barry White on my iPod. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's actually a really interesting question as why would... Why has evolution made it such that two people come together to have sex as opposed to just one person on their own having sex? Because if you think about it, two people on two people coming together to have sex is kind of difficult. If you could reproduce on your own, you would reproduce far more often, at least twice as fast as two people having to come together There's a word to have sex. Mind. What's that word, Darren? We won't go into it. But go on. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, there's something that people call the uh, the twofold cost of sex, and that's that it takes two people to come together to have sex, as opposed to just one person uh, reproducing on their own. And there are there are species of animals and some uh, and mo- a lot, quite a lot of plants and some animals that reproduce on their own, and that's called parthenogenesis. But in mammals and uh, and humans what we have is sexual reproduction. And there are a number of reasons why sexual reproduction is better than just uh, copying yourself through parthenogenesis. One of the reasons is when you combine two people together, you combine their genes. So you, you, you can get the best of both of them. You can also breed out the worst of both of them. So if there's a defective gene in one, you combine with, with, with somebody else, that defective gene essentially gets bred out by the fact that the other person's gene is good. It also creates a whole lot of diversity so if you've got a changing environment as we as we would have had uh, evolving on the savannas of Africa uh, with, with weather changing and climate change and all the other things that were going on back then having a diverse uh, range of genes within your species means that you can adapt to uh, the changing conditions as they as they come about now, not, not all animals fit into either or category. There, there are some cases where some animals that might uh, reproduce through sexual reproduction, that is, with, with, with a partner, sometimes reproduce with asexual reproduction. Yeah. We've seen this with uh, sharks in aquatic centres. Most of the time, uh, the sharks will produce with a, with a partner. But some female sharks have actually reproduced on their own in the absence of males. And, and, and this is kind of really interesting. In parthenogenesis, uh, which is reproducing on your own, you only ever produce females. And there are some species of plants where there are only females. But in this case with sharks, they reproduce females. And what they do, well, in normal sexual reproduction, you get half the, uh, half the genetic material from the female and half the genetic material from the male, and they combine. When you reproduce on your own, 
you take half your genetic material, so that same process happens, the egg forms itself from half your genetic material, but it actually doubles itself. So you don't get a perfect clone of the mum, but you get actually, uh, you get a double of half, if that makes sense. So actually, if you happen to choose a defective gene, you get double that, and uh, that can be quite bad for the offspring, they might breed themselves out. But this is how it works uh, with some sharks. And, it happens in cases where there are no males around, so it's kind of like a last resort. This is the only way the species is going to uh, progress, so this is what they do. There's, there's a really interesting one I forgot to mention there before called uh, gynogenesis, which is where it's asexual reproduction, uh, where you've got the egg, and the egg ne merely needs to be stimulated by the presence of sperm for the offspring to be produced. It doesn't actually take in any of the genetic material from the sperm, it just needs to be stimulated. So it just needs to know it's there, and that's when the uh, the offspring occurs. So the mum actually produces a, a, a copy of herself, a, a copy of her own genetics. There's no male genetics in there, but the male sperm needs to go there to say, hello, I'm ready to go, and then the, the, uh, the female reproduces. So it's a classic example of sperm teasing. That's exactly correct. <laughs> Watching in slow motion as you turn around and say, Take my breath away. We've all heard of natural selection, and uh, that's all about survival of the fittest. Charles Darwin proposed this. But there's actually also something called sexual selection. And Charles Darwin also uh, defined this. He called it the struggle between individuals of one sex, generally the males, for the possession of the other sex. Today, uh, biologists talk about intrasexual selection and intersexual selection. Now, intrasexual sexual selection is uh, the diversity that is created within a species because of male-to-male uh, fighting each other, males fighting each other for possession of women. And then there's intersexual selection, which is all about uh, the female choice of mates. So intrasexual selection might be the sorts of traits that evolve uh, so that males can outcompete each other, like fight each other, to, to, to get a woman. So it's not necessarily just uh, the sort of natural selection you need for your species to survive. It's the sort of selection you need for males to fight off other males to get the girl, essentially. Yeah. So, that, so that your offspring survive. So that your or, offspring... Or actually happen in the first place. Yeah, yeah. so they happen in the first place. So you beat the next guy to the girl, essentially. The sorts of things that we might get here might be uh, something like um, reindeer antlers. Mm -hmm. You know, the reindeers fight each other and those with the bigger antlers essentially may beat the other antlers and fight them off. Well, the other reindeer fight them off you get the girl. Then you've got something like intersexual selection which is the things that make females go all gaga over the guy. Now, why they go all gaga over the guy in the first place is, is a really interesting debate, whether it's just random, whether some traits become uh, positive in the female eye because of genetic drift or just, just through some random thing, uh, or that these traits might actually signal something else, like it might signal some fitness in the male uh, that suggests they'll produce good offspring. But things like this might include like the, the peacock's tail, it doesn't have any particular benefit. It doesn't beat off other men. All it does is attract women. 
In, in fact, it, even to even to the extent that it probably highlights peacocks to to the to, uh, to animals that might want to eat it. You know, it, it, it's actually not that good for it. And this also happens with uh, reindeer antlers. Uh, they can be they can be so big that they can't actually run through the undergrowth anymore. These things get selected for far beyond their purpose. Uh, if if the peacock sale has any purpose in the first place, that they're actually a hindrance. But sexual selection can be so strong that they that they continue in the species. And and you see this kind of you know male show offness, for lack of a better term, in, in a number of species. I mean. Uh, I'm thinking of blue wrens. I mean, another thing, a guppy fish. I don't know if anyone's ever bred guppies. You know, you see, you know, the, the males with the big flamboyant tail and the more colours, um, they're the ones that catch a lady. And, and finches as well, zebra finches. You know, you see the, those that are more bright um, seem to attract. So uh, you certainly see it in, in fish and you certainly see it in birds, these characteristics where if the male's going to attract the female, uh, at some cost, it doesn't, it doesn't matter as long as they get get the woman in the end. There's actually a theory that in humans, that's why we're hairless. And uh, there's also a theory that that's why we have such a large vocabulary. Because we have a much bigger vocabulary than is needed to survive. There's a theory that sexual selection has pushed our vocabulary uh, and therefore probably our, the evolution of our brain to the extent that it is. Because, you know, chimps and other animals survive without our vocabulary. But sexual selection uh, has meant that females have chosen men with a better vocabulary and, and therefore selected them, and this has evolved over time. So, so men who speak bigger words are more likely to attract women? Yeah. Hold that thought. No, 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 seriously. <laughs> I might, um, have, might have to grab myself a dictionary. It's just not enough. So, Darren, have you heard of the sexy sun hypothesis? Well, when you think of sexy sun, I'm no idea. I'm thinking cougars and toy boys, something like that. But <laughs> I'm totally off the off the planet, aren't I? Well, I, well, I think my parents have heard of the sexy sun hypothesis because they, you know, carried through on this. See, the sexy sun hypothesis, uh, it, it, it comes, it, it's the idea that a that a female animal's optimal choice among potential mates is a male whose genes will produce male offspring with the best chance of reproductive success. So they choose men who they think will have kids that will then also have kids. This is the sexy son hypothesis. So you're looking into the future. Yeah, exactly. You're looking into the future. And this is actually one of the explanations uh, that people theorise anyway. The females will go after the bad guy. After the bad guy that will cheat. Because they may they may hook up with a guy that cheats, but that means that their kids will also be highly reproductive, but may also cheat. Right. This is the theory so, behind it. The theory behind why women might like the bad guy. So, the, so their, their 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 offspring will do what their father did, and that is spread his seed all over the place. That's right. Which ensures that their half or their part of their DNA is more likely to succeed in spreading. Yeah, that's right. So they'll, they'll choose a guy, even though maybe culturally this is uh, not particularly acceptable, 
uh, they'll choose a guy that is likely to produce an offspring that will then further reproduce. Well, that's all very interesting on how women might pick men, but let's look at how men might pick women. And, and this uh, study that I came across, which was in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology... Mm, I'm a subscriber. Yeah. <laughs> Every night I read it. Um, and the University of Rochester researchers, they, they um, decided to have a look at, at, at what influences men in choosing women. They actually found the colour red. The colour red. The colour red was a factor. They found that uh, if, uh, if they... Um, had women that were wearing red clothes or were, their pictures were bordered with a red frame, they were more likely to see that woman as attractive or kissable as they, they class in this study. That's really interesting. How would red come into uh, evolutionary thoughts, do we think? Well, uh, at first the researchers sort of postulate that it might have something to do with, you know, red equating to love and Valentine's Day and all that sort of thing. But then they, they, they go one step further and, and they suggest that it may even have, you know, um, uh, have its origins back in our sort of primate roots where if you look at uh, baboons and chimpanzees, for example, when the females are on heat... That's um, their, their rear ends glow a very bright red colour. Because there's got to be a reason for Valentine's Day being red. Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, the origins of lipstick, for example, which, which go back into Egyptian times, um, it suggested that women, when they were sexually excited and sexually aroused, um, that, their, that all their blood vessels, the capillaries uh, in, in the lips of both their mouth and also in the labia, um, also become in, engorged with blood and become that bright red colour. And, uh, and, and so that's where it's suggested that that sort of theory of red relating to lust and sex and, and love comes from. But also, you know, also back to our, our primate roots with chimpanzees and baboons, you know, displaying those red colours. So that was, that was quite an interesting study. They also, also they, they asked the, uh, the, the men in that study, um, uh, in, in, in a slightly different set of questions, uh, women that they would, uh, how much money they would spend on a woman at a, in a date that they would have with them. And those women that were dressed in red, they were more likely to spend all their money. Really? That's fascinating. Now, let's flip the cards and have a look at, at women and what women uh, see in men. And this study was done in the University of Aberdeen, um, where they recruited um, 4,500 women and uh, over 30 different countries. So they did this, this test over the internet. This is more Scottish people recruiting people in other countries. Yeah, exactly. They, they seem to be obsessed with the, uh, the idea of sex and sexual selection. Um, but what they did is they, they, they asked these women to look at a series of photos which had been created. Um, and to judge whether they thought these men were attractive or not. And then they, when they uh, looked at the, the country of origin from these women that, 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 that looked at whether these men were attractive and, and compared them to what they call the National Health Index, and that is you know, the relative health of those nations, they found that women in poorer countries were more likely to pick the more masculine man as the most attractive. And, and they right. suggest that this might have something to do with women in an unhealthy environment may prefer a stronger or more macho man as a sign of genetic well-being and therefore that their offspring are more likely to survive. Um, and so that study, if you want to check that out, that appears in, uh, in the 17th of March edition of the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Journal. That's really interesting. There's, there's quite a number of different things that have been looked at as uh, being indicators of good genetic stock. Wealth, we talked about earlier, whether somebody's good-looking, that sort of thing. 
There's also the uh, the idea that uh, women at different parts of their menstrual cycle will like different kinds of men. It's the, the the cad or dad theory, I think, is the is one of the terms that are used. So they go for a cad when uh, highly uh, fertile, go for a dad when not so fertile, needing someone to look after their kids. Do you think that's? Uh, do you think we've evolved past this type of idea? I mean, it's easy for people to come up with these theories, but. When does uh, human uh, sort of cultural norms start to overtake this sort of thing? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, for some people, it's just a case of if, if the other person from the other sex actually says hello. I mean, right. we're, we're in a sitting in a, in a pub here. I mean, and, and we're, you know, quite often relationships spawn and people meet each other. And it's a case of just one person saying hello to another person and you think, well, that person's taken interest in me and, and therefore, you know, I'll, I'll start this relationship from friendship and blossoming into into maybe love and marriage and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, is it too much to read into that underlying, you know, primordial feelings and, and, and whether it be hormones or psychological feelings or whatever? I don't know. I mean, I sometimes wonder. maybe yeah. it's just, just a passing glance and someone actually so giving two a week and passing hello. in the night and giving a wink, I mean, that's worked for me, so, We've, we've covered um, a range of different topics and studies that have looked into sex and sexual relation. I'm sure there are many, many more that we, we haven't even um, touched on and that you'll probably find if you do a, a Google search on the internet. Just be careful in the words that you choose. Um, but, you know, now it's time to have a speak to the punters and see what they think about science and sex and, and what have we learned through science about sex and sexual selection. I think that men want sex more than women. And, and what's led you to that conclusion? Oh, just the studies I've heard in the media reports. <laughs> no personal experience there? No, no, no scientific personal experience. <laughs> is there anything that you've read from science that has improved um, your sex life? Uh, yes, the thing is that it seems to be an important uh, component of living a healthy life and a balanced life. There was that uh, book that came out recently, I can't remember its name, I think it's The Origin of Sex, and it was about the um, unnatural nature of monogamy. That was really sweet. The unnatural nature of monogamy? Yes, it believed that... Um, Prior to an agrarian culture, um, monogamy wasn't actually something that was understood because we didn't understand the nature of husbandry, so that it was a relatively modern concept. So pairing up is like a a cultural thing, not a... uh, A recent cultural thing. A recent recent cultural thing. thing. Yeah, a recent cultural thing. Prior to that, we didn't actually get how it worked. So it was like, form a cue. In either direction. Do you know what? In either direction. People were a bit... They did die really early. Like yes, living to a hundred is a bit different. To if I was going to die at twenty, I was going out with a bat. There's a study. There's a study out of China that suggests the more you earn, the more likely your female partner is to have an orgasm. Have you uh, have you have you felt a change throughout your student life and then into your working life as you've earned more money? Nah, flowers don't cost that much. <laughs> 
It's like 25 bucks. Jesus. Not that big of a jump for me. You don't go from spending 25 to 100, you just stay with the 25 one. Cute personality. I think the cuteness is very underrated. Cuteness is one of the most attractive features in the entire world. All about cuteness. Do, do you think that men and women actually subconsciously think about offspring, about the the, the kids that they might produce when they're meeting? All, um, I sure as hell don't. I won't lie to you. Uh, personally, I think that it's not about the length or the width or the. It's about the way that the guy actually performs, as opposed to like length, width, fifteen centimeters. Is that what you're talking about? So yeah, I, I don't know. I think if a guy has talent, he will be able to make love to you no matter what. Okay, well, throughout life, I look for a girl that is structured in her own little way. Um, I look for a girl that's very sexy, hot. Um, she's extremely beautiful. And she has her own... Well, she can tell me what to do. Physical is really what it's all about because obviously the instantaneous reaction to anyone is the physical reaction. It's not going to be a mental reaction. You could see someone walk into a room and say, oh my God, who the fuck is that guy? But it's not until you actually meet him that you get a mental reaction. So, yeah, it's all about the physical. Well, there you go. I think we've dealt with this topic, sex and sexual selection, in a fairly tasteful, scientific manner. hope we haven't made it too clinical for you, but uh, you know, maybe you might feel like a, a Barry White CD or a cigarette afterwards. But on behalf of Darren Osborne and Mark West, this is the Beer Drinking Scientist, and we'll catch you again next time for another episode. This episode of the Beer Drinking Scientists was produced by Darren Osborne. For show notes, visit the website at bds.podbean.com. If you have any questions or suggestions for Mark West or Darren Osborne, send an email to beerdrinkingscientists at gmail.com. I'm Tilly Berlin. Thanks for joining us.